From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. Ten years is quite a long time, and the Gators ended their decade of disappointment with a resounding win over the Seminoles, their first home victory in the series since 2009. In doing so, they also took a critical step forward in the development of the program and laid claim to the unofficial title of state champions. On today's show, we'll welcome FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry to discuss the dominant performance, the legacy of this senior class, the departure of Felipe Franks, the latest trials and tribulations for basketball, volleyball's path to the Sweet 16, and the craziness of the coaching carousel in the PAT. Then, grad transfer and preseason SEC Player of the Year Kerry Blackshear Jr. stops by to discuss the weight of lofty expectations, how basketball is truly in his blood, and the impact his childhood travels around the world had on his formative years. But first, Florida was favored to slide by Florida State by a wide margin, and they delivered with an explosive second quarter, putting the game all but out of reach. So to open this week's roundtable, we asked Scott and Chris what it meant for the Gators to take care of business in style. It was just a, a night that I think a lot of people showed up at, kind of hoping the game would go that way. You obviously never know until both teams get out there and start playing. But, you know, considering the recent history against Florida State in the Swamp, uh, had not beaten them since 2009, four consecutive losses. And, you know, with the win over in Tallahassee last year to snap the five-game losing streak overall, uh, it was the perfect way to uh, kind of cap Dan Mullen's second regular season. Got them to 10 wins, which matches last year's total. Gives them a chance for 11 in a bowl. But it also highlighted, you know, a lot of what the talking points were before this game is how quickly things can change in college football. I mean, this was a rivalry that Florida State had dominated for the better part of a decade. And uh, the Gators, since Dan Mullen has gotten here, they've won two in a row now and have turned the tide. And the home fans finally got to see it in person and kind of celebrate. It was a a very festive atmosphere in the swamp. There was really uh, not a lot of doubt. Uh, after the Gators took the 30-7 to lead at the break. And, uh, you know, Kyle Trask had a good game. The receivers made big plays. The defense, uh, you know, was all over Florida State's quarterbacks the whole night. Uh, and most importantly, it was just, uh, as I said earlier, you want to win those games, as Dan Mullen said last week. He wanted the sweet taste and not the bitter taste. He got it for the second year in a row. And uh, Gator fans uh, will be able to celebrate that win until they meet again next year in Tallahassee and do it all over again. But 2019 uh, in the swamp belonged to the Gators. Yeah, I was struck by the matter of fact of it all. In the run-up to the game, the pregame, walking in, uh, fans were jacked up. Obviously, a night game, you know, it was sold out. You felt that the fan base finally knew what was going to happen after 10 years of coming here, uh, losing four times to Florida State on your home field, which had never happened before, obviously. Um, had not won since Tim Tebow was the quarterback on his senior night. And uh, there wasn't a whole lot of drama to be had. Like I said, there was Florida did go down and score a touchdown first series. After she went down and scored a touchdown in the first series, then it was 
30 to seven by halftime. And it was kind of like ho-hum, you know, it was excitement in the stadium. I mean, people love the, what the defense did. Uh, Todd Grantham just sent waves of, of pass rushers at whoever was playing quarterback for Florida State. Eight sacks. Jonathan Grenard, uh, who, you know, Scott has referenced any number of times this year. I mean, the guy was fantastic. Uh, uh, just an, an incredible performance by him. And I was struck afterwards how he said everyone knows uh, what we could have been if we would have been healthy this year, which is a reference, of course, harkening back to not being able to play. He and Jab- uh, Jabari Zaniga, who didn't play against Florida State, of all things, on his senior night. If they had been healthy when uh, Florida had gone to LSU to face that high-powered offense or whatever. But Scott used the reference a couple weeks ago. He was at the Missouri game. I was not because of the uh, because of basketball. But uh, workmanlike, businesslike, yep. um, I mean, that's kind of what this game was too. Florida is that much better than Florida State. Probably not talent-wise, but certainly uh, when it comes to X's and O's and putting guys in position and the bigger picture of the of the whole football program right now uh, they got issues up there and up in Tallahassee and it's the antithesis obviously of what's going on here in Gainesville obviously you want to win on senior day and, and that's a big deal but it also the game being such a showcase for Florida seniors especially you know those four wide receivers that have meant so much and the way they've grown with the program and obviously you know we've had those guys on here multiple times they're not only are they great players but they, they've been great people for the program they've led that buy-in when Dan Mullen came in I guess if you guys can just talk about the importance of specifically them but most of these seniors in turning the tide of this team and this culture over the last two years under Mullen. Well, those guys have been instrumental, and I like what Mullen did in that game, uh, opening that drive with the four senior receivers all out there together in the starting lineup. You know, Van Jefferson caught two touchdown passes. Obviously, Freddie Swain got it going with a couple early. Uh, Tyree Cleveland had his best game in the second half of the season, four catches, 44 yards, had a 40-yard kickoff return. And then Josh Hammond had a big catch. Uh, I think 31 yards so they all contributed and you're right they're they're not only good players but uh, they're good people I mean every Monday Dan Mullen his press conference one of the guys there every single Monday is Josh Hammond uh, you need those guys who are going to give your locker room a voice going to put a face to it publicly Josh has served that uh, Van Jefferson what a great pickup that was he transferred in from Ole Miss played his last two years here uh, you can make the case easily that of the senior receivers Van is probably the most talented in the way he runs routes and you know he's probably got a pro future somewhere Freddie Swain just makes big plays I mean that's what he's going to be known for here seems like he's involved in big plays almost every game and then of course uh, Tyree Cleveland uh, you know he's going to forever go down as the guy who caught the big pass from Felipe Frank against Tennessee, had a 98-yard catch at LSU from Austin Appleby. So all those guys had their signature moments at Florida. They all went out in style on Saturday night against Florida State, and uh, you really just couldn't ride it any better for those guys. Yeah, and to piggyback on that phrase, signature moment, um, Scott tweeted it out, I tweeted it out. Those guys lost themselves in that senior night. If you saw them after the game, Freddie Swain with this, just a nostalgic look on his face, uh, looking up at the crowd, you know, just kind of soaking it all in as he as he walked off the field. Same with Tyree Cleveland uh, on a knee kind of looked. I don't know if he was praying. I don't know if he was just like, like I said, soak, soaking up the, the ambiance of the whole thing. But you could tell that this was important to them. Being Gators were important to them. Their Florida careers were important to them going out like this. 
was important to them. And obviously each one of those guys will be remembered for helping uh, Dan Mullen flip this thing. Uh, he talks about throw out Gator standard all the time. God knows how many times I've written it in game stories this year because it's repeated and it's repeated. And sometimes when players repeat things that coaches say, it kind of falls on deaf ears. But when it's repeated and it's uh, applied on Saturdays, then obviously it's resonating. And you can tell that all of this meant something to these players. And uh, uh, I can't imagine um, – them going out, you know, unless it had been, you know, 60 to 17 on a better note than they did uh, uh, Saturday night. So that puts the season in the books. And now you look toward the bowl game and we'll find out where Florida is going on Sunday. But as of now, what does the outlook appear to be for Florida? What are some of the most likely destinations for their bowl trip? Well, what happened Saturday night in the swamp? Obviously, Florida, that's what they had in mind. I think they worked themselves into a, a New Year's Six Bowl now. It's still kind of up in the air, Adam. We won't find out until Sunday until the official uh, bowl pairings are announced. You know, I'm kind of expecting it to be the cotton or the orange bowl. Uh, that's just kind of my gut. But you've seen, I've seen them projected in each of those by different prognosticators, as we like to call them. Regardless, the second consecutive New Year's Six Bowl under Dan Mullen looks like it's uh, out there for the Gators and you know that's a that's a big step in the right direction uh they're still not where they want to be I mean they want to eventually be in Atlanta this weekend and play in the SEC West champion for a, a chance in the college football playoff and this season to kind of speak to the Gators what they've done I mean the two teams that are playing in that game those are only two teams Florida lost to LSU and Georgia both were good games. Uh, the Gators had their chances there, couldn't get it done, and now that's where the next step for the program is. But right now, going to a New Year's Six Bowl with the chance to win 11 games for only the eighth time in school history. And if you win that, you're going to finish again in the top at least seven or six in the country. And considering some of the ups and downs this decade, uh, that's a pretty strong uh, place for the Gators to finish. I want to turn our attention to the uh, the big story that came out on Sunday afternoon, which was the announcement from Felipe Franks that he was going to be moving on either into the NFL draft or potentially another school as a grad transfer. And I don't know that it was that surprising of an announcement given what's transpired throughout the year with Kyle Trask taking such a, a stronghold of that quarterback job. But what can you guys say about the, the journey of Felipe Franks and his decision to, to move on at this point? I would compare him more, and I think Scott did in a in a column he wrote for FloridaGators.com uh, to Doug Johnson. Um, that was probably a little before your time, Adam. I don't even know if you were if you were born then. <laughs> uh, Doug Johnson uh, was here. He took over for Danny Werfel, and while he didn't have the uh, he didn't win the championships, Danny Werfel won. He put up a bunch of really gaudy numbers. He beat Peyton Manning. Uh, uh, he had a, a signature night against number one. Ranked Florida State and the best defense in the country in 1997. Um, but he also had uh, some some bad games. He made a couple uh, off field uh, or off field uh, decisions that were weren't great, or at least one rather. Um, uh, he had a horrible game against LSU that ended Florida's uh, 25 game uh, CC winning streak on the road. But I'm, I'm making the comparison there because Doug Johnson had some great moments. Felipe Franks had some great moments, and yet neither one of those guys ever really. Uh, had total buy-in from the fans, maybe because of the the uh, subpar games that they had at particular moments or what have you. Felipe Franks obviously made himself 
more of a polarizing figure with his with his hush and uh, maybe with the way he carried himself and some things that maybe people saw like uh, away from the football field and what have you. But I think like anything else, as time goes on, I think people hopefully I'm speaking for Felipe Franks here. Hopefully we'll remember him uh, as a guy who was really liked by his teammates, as a guy who uh, was an impassioned gator. And a guy, let's face it, who uh, on the back end of the 2018 season, you know, put the offense on his back and had some fantastic games. And correct me if I'm wrong, Scott, but he put up uh, the best numbers, uh, quarterback numbers, since Tim Tebow was here uh, until Kyle, of course, took snaps this season. Yeah, I mean, you're right, Chris. Uh, he got the ball rolling, so to speak, what we're talking about with Gators doing this year. They, it started at the end of last year. And it, you know, it's a story that is going to be interesting to look back on and, you know, really how it played out because he had a, one of his moments where the fans really gave Felipe Franks a difficult time was in last year's loss at home to Missouri. He struggled. The Gators lost 38-17. He gets pulled. Kyle Trask comes in. You know, it doesn't lead him to victory, but let him on a score and drive. The offense looked a little better. So there was all that speculation that Kyle Trask would take over the following week against South Carolina. Of course, he breaks his foot earlier that week in practice. And then Felipe Franks gets back in there against the Gamecocks or lose him by, what, 17 in the fourth quarter. He leads them to a comeback win. And you know what? That was the last, uh, he never lost another game as Florida's starting quarterback. Uh, you know, he won the rest of them last year. He opened this year with wins against Miami and UT Martin. And obviously got hurt in the Kentucky game, and and that opened the door finally for Trapped, who you know has come in and uh, and done an excellent job. And uh, there's no doubt that Kyle Trask helped the offense in a different way uh, than Felipe Franks did. Felipe has his strengths, Trask has his. The bottom line is uh, Felipe he he made this decision to uh, seek his opportunity elsewhere, whether or not it's in the pros or with another chance. It's you know. I thought it was a uh, probably a good decision for everybody, uh, you know, with the way that the quarterback room shaping up. I mean, with Kyle Trask and Emory Jones, they've been a nice uh, one-two punch this year. Felipe Franks has a long rehab. He was going to be questionable at best for uh, spring camp. Uh, so he's he's won that job over Trask a couple of times. You know, uh, he hasn't spoken publicly yet other than his statement. So we don't know exactly what all went into his thinking. Uh, to decide to move on. But, you know, if you're a Gator fan and you like your players being true competitors, you know, when I think about Felipe Franks, Chris said how well-liked he was in the locker room. He was very coachable. If you talk to anybody on this team, they really do got his back. And uh, I was watching him the other night before the game uh, as the Gators came in during the Gator walk, and Felipe was at the entrance to the locker room. And, of course, I didn't know it at the time, but, you know, I, I noticed that he was down there, you know, basically shaking every guy's hand and hugging them as they walked in. Uh, maybe he already knew that that was going to be his last game, uh, but he obviously made his presence felt even after getting hurt and, you know, not being able to play. And you uh, wish him the best, whatever is next for him. But I'll remember I'll remember his competitive spirit, man. The guy, no matter what you think of him, he left it all out there.
you know, I think when you look over the course of the last 20 years, there's a lot of quarterbacks that have come in and out, so you can probably compare them to a lot of different guys for, for various reasons. But uh, we'll have to wait and see where his story goes from here. We'll certainly talk about that uh, when that happens. I want to turn our attention now to basketball. And, you know, it's funny, Chris, we talked a week ago. It was right after the Charleston Classic. Florida was riding high. And I think that the consensus was, which is, you know, this, this tends to happen when you follow sports. Well, they won a few games. Everything's fine. All the problems are fixed. And then they came out against Marshall on Friday and, and did not have a very good performance. They did eke one out, but suddenly the doubt creeps back in. So I guess, you know, talk about what the last week has been like for Florida and, uh, you know, the, the ups and downs that are still going to continue to come seemingly no matter what happens on a game to game basis. Yeah, I mean, the, the you you leave Charleston and you you come home and you you've shot the ball well, you've made threes, uh, got a little more rhythm to your stuff on offense. You got bounce in your step, and from externally, it look like things are are heading in the right direction. And frankly, maybe internally in the locker room and maybe inside some of these guys' heads, uh, they're feeling pretty good about themselves. Probably too good about themselves. Um, like anything else, I mean, Marshall comes into the O Dome, you know, just calling it like it is. Not a great team. OK, but they're coming to Florida and everyone wants to give Florida the best shot. And I, I, one of these days, the Gators are going to figure this out a little bit because uh, Towson did it. Obviously, Florida State's a good team. They're up to 17th in the rankings. People probably didn't see that coming with the Seminoles, but uh, they did it. I mean, a team that started number six didn't deserve that high ranking, went to 15, dropped out of the top 25 after the, the loss at UConn. Again, a, a team Florida goes to UConn. Place is packed, jumping maniacally. They squeak out a victory up there. UConn does. Uh, and then Florida plays great in Charleston, like I mentioned. And then being off on the details, uh, I was at practice earlier in the week, and Mike White made the point to his team. Going in that Marshall game, one of the points of emphasis was to not allow uh, Jansen Williams, the forward, to get open three-pointers. Don't give him close out on him. Do not allow him to get open three-pointers. The most he had had is – attempts he'd had in a, in a game this year. He had six once. They said, do not let him get six three-point. He got 11 shots off. Hmm. He made four threes. He made one at the end of the half, at the end of the shot clock, right before the, the halftime buzzer. That kind of, to me, kind of defined the, the lack of discipline by the defense in that game. And, de- and defense, it looked disjointed right out of the box. Andrew Nemar did not play well at all. Uh, Florida didn't have an assist in the first half. I mean, I'm not sure I've ever covered a game where that happened. I probably have. I don't know. I've covered a lot of basketball over my years. Uh, Mike White couldn't remember being involved in a game where that had happened. Um, down eight, I think, at the half. Scored the first 10 of the second half to kind of get back in. It moved the ball a lot better. Got a lot more aggressive. Keontae Johnson attacking the basket is something they have to have. Kerry Blackshear Jr. posting up and getting the ball on the block is something they need to have. Both those guys were in foul trouble uh, in the first half, so uh, uh, that kind of – led to the, some hinkiness within the offense. I think you do have to uh, give Quez Glover some credit. He's kind of uh, uh, emerged. He did so up in Charleston after scoring four points, I think, in the first four games. I think he has 50 in the in the four games since. So uh, he's kind of uh, taken on something of, a, of an additional role, and yet he doesn't have a bunch of assists uh, from that so-called scoring point guard position. So uh, there's plenty of work to do, and unfortunately, or maybe it's fortunate for them, they only have three games over the next three weeks, but they're against three good teams. They play at Butler Saturday. Butler's the team that began the week, ranked for the first time since 2017. Uh, uh, they're unbeaten uh, coming into the week. 
Florida has to go to Hinkle Fieldhouse, which is home of the motion picture Hoosers, of course. So that'll be kind of a, a, a cool kind of thing for them. You can't, but you, all, you also can't get lost in that whole thing. Uh, very good team, incredibly disciplined. They also play slow. Uh, they actually play slower than Florida does. I know fans get on uh, Mike White's uh, tempo. This Butler's a slower team, but also a more efficient team offensively if you look at the Ken Palm ranks and what have you. Uh, Ten days later, Florida plays Providence in Brooklyn. Uh, a few days after the, the weekend after that, that's a Tuesday night game, I believe. The weekend after that, they go to Sunrise and play Utah State, which is a top 15 team. So you're talking about a Big East team a Big East team, and then a nationally ranked Utah State team that won 25 games. So uh, not only will we know a lot more about Florida uh, over the course of the next few weeks, but they're going to go up against some good teams, and they'll be forced to play a lot better than they have. But uh, uh, they'll also – maybe there's something to the um, – to a lack of attention or f- lack of focus or something and playing down to your level of competition. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I hate talking about that, and I'm sure coaches hate talking about it too. The more I'm inside with these some of these teams, the more I, I think I talk like a coach, unfortunately. Um, however, if that is indeed something that's going on here, playing down your level of competition, that's not something they're going to have to worry about over the course of the next few weeks because they're going to play some really good teams, obviously. Well, and there's no question, maturity is not developed overnight. It doesn't come from just one win when you're really young, it can take a long time. And you mentioned, Chris, the idea of starting to feel good about yourselves. If Florida wins the next five in a row, that still might happen again. You know, the only thing that can really change that is experience. And, and that takes time. You can't you can't shortcut that part of it. Yeah. And you talk about uh, this, this being a young team. And yet it's tough to have it both ways because I'm sure at the end and I don't remember specifically, but I'm, I'm sure it happened. And I'm sure I probably wrote about it at the end of last season. We were probably writing about how uh, Andrew Nemhard and and Noah Locke and and Keontae Johnson weren't freshmen anymore. They they I mean they they started I think 82 games combined last season, but they didn't start with this group. Okay, they didn't start with Kerry Blackshear. They didn't uh, play a bunch with uh, Quez Glover or Scotty Lewis or Trey Mann. I can't overstate the scoring ability of Trey Mann. Uh, in a way you would understand because you haven't really it hasn't translated to the games. This is what this is the best pure scorer on the basketball team, no, without any doubt, and and everyone sees it in practice and has seen it in practice. Obviously, he got the concussion up at UConn, and he's just kind of getting his feet under him a little bit. But we didn't see it before that either. I think he did have 11 points in the first game of the season. But there will come a time where Trey Mann is going to have a game, uh, maybe in the in the same way maybe Scotty Lewis had some of those flash moments in Charleston. But uh, he's kind of a, a sleeping giant in this whole equation. They got to figure out a way to where his role is going to be and how much how much he's going to play but he needs to get some confidence to start taking some of those open shots that that he's bypassed but back to your original point they're going to play more together and some there'll be some speed bumps down the line and what have you but uh there's four games between now and the start of the sec schedule uh january 4th against alabama and plenty of opportunities to face good teams and to kind of sharpen all the tools that they do have in their box so we know what's going on with basketball. Also going on this weekend is NCAA volleyball. We haven't talked a lot about Mary Wise's team this year, but uh, they're in another good position, Scott, to make a run at, at their first national championship. 29th straight year in the NCAA tournament, Adam. Uh, that's, that's amazing in itself. That's the uh, fourth longest streak in the country. Uh, they're going to host Alabama State on Thursday in the first round, then get the winner of Florida State UCF uh, on Friday night. Uh, with a chance for the uh, Sweet 16. This is the 26th time, you know, in the last uh, 30 years that Florida has hosted this 
first and second round. So this is familiar territory for the Gators, unlike last year when they actually went out to Utah and lost. And uh, so, uh, you know, it's, it's this is a better team than they had last year. They're ranked 12th in the country, co-SEC champs with Kentucky. And it'll be interesting to see if they can gel at the right time of year to play them well and see if this team is the one that, you know, can maybe uh, help Mary Wise win that championship. Uh, two years ago, they were in the championship match out in Kansas City and lost to Nebraska. Uh, so they had to kind of reload after that, and they finally have a team, I think, that is getting close back to that caliber. And uh, it'll be a, it's going to be a fun time of year. So check out FloydGators.com for the latest on volleyball as they look to make it to the Sweet 16. Uh, as we turn our attention to the PAT, and you mentioned, Scott, making the NCAA tournament in a lot of years in a row, uh, that's something I guess isn't that valuable in football if you want to translate it to going to bowl games. I want to talk about the uh, the silly season, which we just entered, and the coaching carousel. Some of these things have made sense. I guess you could argue that Bully Taggart makes sense because of how bad things were for FSU, even though it was only a year and a half into his tenure. But then you start to see the changes that USF made with Charlie Strong and his resume over three years. Steve Adazio makes it to a bowl game almost every year at Boston College. That's not good enough for Boston College. Missouri gets rid of Barry Odom after going 500, despite having NCAA issues faced in the future. Ole Miss as well. I mean, these are piling up. I guess what I want to try and figure out from you guys with your vast experience, when did we get to this point? When did we get to the point that every team that is not competing in a, in a conference championship game uh, seems to think that they need to move on, spend millions of dollars to go start over somewhere else? Because it, it did not used to be this way. And I'm trying to figure out where and when the inflection point was. I don't know if there's one inflection point. I think the scrutiny in today because of, first of all, the salaries. These guys are paid millions of dollars. And I've said this once, I'll say it again. The most powerful person in college football is Jimmy Sexton, the super agent. He controls this time of year. He has for, you know, since what, the last 15 years. So he has kind of created this marketplace to where, you know, the salaries have skyrocketed and, and the expectations and the fan bases are kind of amplified through social media and everything is just bigger than it used to be. I mean, it used to be, you know, a bad moment in a game. You know, people talked about the Barstool. Now we see highlights over for a week and we see analysts discuss it and break it down for a week. So I think the people who are making these decisions, the ADs, I mean, they're, they're tied into more of the football coach than any other person on campus. Their jobs are often linked to the success of the football program. Uh, so it all works together. You know, it, it's, it has evolved to where I don't know if we'll ever see coaches like Bobby Bowden and Joe Paterno and, you know, Woody Hayes, Bo Schimbleger, guys who stay places for 20 plus years. I don't know if, if those days are going forever because I don't think fans will allow any true dips during a tenure to just sit there. The people in charge will feel they have to make a move to keep the, the fan bases happy and to keep the money poured in. Uh, there's more money involved now than ever before. So it's kind of a complicated uh, a topic. There's a lot of factors, you know. Uh, Steve Adazio, you mentioned him. I mean, Boston College spent a lot of money on facilities during his tenure. They expect more out of the football program. He gets fired. He's had a good run there if you look at Boston College historically, but that's just the times we live in, man. I don't know. I don't have a perfect answer, but that's kind of my take. Nowadays, they have uh, they put out charts before the season starts. 
most likely to get fired first. It, it, the teams, the guys are zero and zero right. for the season, and they're already like saying, "I was just scrolling on my phone, just in, in studying up for your uh, PAT." One of the guys uh, who was uh, on the hot seat. This was uh, 2018. I was looking at the number one coach likely to get fired in the NFL in 2018 was uh, John Harbaugh. Uh, how's he doing now? Yeah, I think they stuck with him. Okay. Um, I, I I remember in I don't know if it was 2007 or 2008 when I was covering the NFL, there were nine head coach jobs open at one point uh, on Black Monday or after the season was over or whatever. That's almost a third. That's almost a quarter of the league. I don't know. I, I, I think Scott mentioned it. I mean, I think whenever you lose a game, the first inclination from the fan base is to fire somebody. Right. Right. I still I told the story yesterday because we were talking about, uh, you know, they're not happy in Alabama right now. Yeah. <laughs> think about that. He's won five of the last ten. Uh, he's been in every playoff. Fire him. Fire him. Now, I don't know that they're saying that, but I mean, well, I mean, maybe is this it? Is this it for him? Is that is this is this really the conversation that that, that they're having? Um, but I mean, it's up to the the administration, and whether you're talking about an AD or a general manager or what have you, to just have some sanity through it all. Because, and I imagine it's not very easy because those guys have to deal, especially the athletic directors and college athletics, have to deal with the high profile donors and what have you who can be just as reactionary. Uh, I know uh, some high-profile donors here that look at message boards also, and it's obviously not a good thing. I've told a couple, I've told at least one of them, they needs to like uh, refrain from getting on there and diving into that that cesspool, if you will. Um, but uh, I've never seen it like it is. You know, co- coaches have gotten fired, of course, uh, annually over the years. There's been you know bunches of them at the same time, but the vitriol with which it's all done is, is a little different these days. And uh, there is a lot of high pressure out there to make some kind of decisions, but it's the administrate the administrators that are that that are strong and can handle it and and kind of you know make decisions with with a measure of patience and what have you have a better hand and a better pulse on the whole thing. Yep, great points all around, and certainly it's uh, it's only getting crazier, and we'll see where it takes us the next few weeks uh, as the carousel continues to turn. But uh, that's all we got for this week. And, of course, we'd tell everybody to stay tuned over at FloridaGators.com. The content keeps coming, even if the games slow down. At Gators Scott, at Gators Chris on Twitter as well. Guys, thank you so much. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, Adam. Transfers often give teams a boost, but rarely do they come with the fanfare and hoopla that surrounded Kerry Blackshear Jr. The Orlando native decided to become a free agent following his coach's departure from Virginia Tech, and the Gators are glad he chose to come back home and don the orange and blue. We spoke to the worldly Blackshear about a wide range of topics on basketball and beyond, but began at the very beginning of his story. Um, I'm from Orlando, Florida. I grew up a Gator fan and everything like that. Um, I come from a basketball family, so I had the opportunity to see my dad play overseas and stuff like that. Um, up until about fifth grade, we would go overseas and um, we would spend time with him during his seasons over there. And um, that's kind of how I learned how to play basketball, just watching a lot of overseas guys play. I think that really influenced my game. Then I was able to see a, a little bit of the world and stuff like that with my family, so it was really good. Well, I know basketball is not just part of your makeup and your dad's makeup. It's your mom. It's your siblings. Can you tell us about how deep these basketball roots run in your family. As soon as like we're able to walk and talk, um, everybody in the family like just plays basketball. Um, each of my parents played in college. Um, that's how they met and everything. And then my younger brother, he's at FAU with Coach Justin May. My 
little sister, she's at Lake Highland Prep. So um, just basketball runs deep for us. Um, we all play. We all, like, support each other. We're all pretty competitive. So um, it's a nice thing that um, keeps the family bond going. Yeah, what happens on Thanksgiving? Is there, like, a, a family pickup tournament every year? You guys go, like, one-on-one? You play knockout? How does that work when you guys are all competing against each other? Uh, we never really competed against each other like that. Um, it's more so we all just get in the gym and, like, work on our game with each other. Um, my mom, I have my sister on one end, and then my dad, I have me and my brother. Over the summer this year, uh, me and my my brother tried to challenge me a little bit, played me in one-on-one. Um, I beat him every time. <laughs> and my dad, like, he doesn't, like, really play anymore, but he'll um, try to have a shooting contest with us. And uh, he can still shoot pretty well, so he can have those games. Given the, the role that the basketball played, was it just instant that you knew you loved it and you wanted to do it, or did, did it maybe take you a while to commit fully to the sport? I always wanted to play basketball. Um, it was just something that like fell into my lap, and I just always loved it. A big part of me growing up and maturing, um, just learning how to work, learning how to work with others, learning how to become a better leader, learning how to be a better version of myself, not only in basketball but in other sectors of my life. I think that's something that was really influential about being able to see my dad play, see how far I took him in life, and being able to see, like, the difference it made in my mom's life and being able to see other people in my family like grow as they matured and stuff throughout basketball. So I think basketball has always been something that's important to me and something that's continued to grow each and every year as I play. Did you play any other sports growing up or was it always just 100% focused on basketball? Um, For me, like, recreationally I like play other sports but I'd only seriously play basketball. Like when I was overseas I'd play like soccer for fun and stuff like that. But my main focus was always basketball for sure. Now, when you talk about going overseas, were these just brief trips to go see your dad? Or was this like you would move somewhere temporarily and follow him around? We'd be up there essentially for the entire season. So if it was like a seven, eight month season, like we'd be up there the entire time. Oh, wow. He he might get there like a month before, like just to get set up and like go through training camps and stuff like that. But essentially when the season starts, we'd be over there the entire time. So it was pretty fun. What were some of the places that took you? Which ones stand out when you think back to that time? I definitely remember living in Barcelona. Um, we lived in Valencia for a while, um, a place called Lydia for a while. So those are all nice places. Um, I think like the first trip I went to, I went to the Dominican Republic with my dad. I don't remember that one as much as I do Spain, but I, I definitely like have seen pictures of me there and stuff too. So they're all good places. What was it like, I guess, culturally growing up, moving around to these different places where you don't necessarily know the language, you don't you don't know the culture? How did that affect you sort of as you grew up and, and developed? I started to learn a lot pretty quickly because I went to all Spanish speaking school. So like I started to learn the language pretty well and then hang around kids my age. And then also I think that made me really close to my family at home too, because it wasn't like we were out there alone, but Essentially, like, we just tied back to each other. Um, my mom would be stay at home and cook and tutor us, um, make sure we stayed up to date on the things we need to learn back over in the States, but also, like, help us learn our Spanish and stuff like that. I spent a lot of time with my little brother. Like, we've always played video games. I always went to the park and stuff like that. And then my sister was still a baby, so she was um, still learning how to walk and everything. So it was a really fun time an opportunity for us to um, band together as a family, but also embrace, like, another culture. Mm -hmm. 
I want to fast forward to the time when you were getting recruited. Which schools were you most interested in during that process, and what made Virginia Tech the right choice at the time? So I was getting recruited by a lot of schools at the time. I think it came that time. I think it came down to Kansas State, SMU. Um, I think Georgia was in the mix, and then Virginia Tech, obviously. And um, I chose all those schools because they were all in big-time conferences. Um, I felt like I had the opportunity to grow at each of those places, and um, I felt like those were all well-coached schools. And then ultimately, I chose to play for Coach Buzz because um, I felt like he was someone who would help me grow on and off the floor. He was someone that always was honest with me throughout the entire process. And his journey at Virginia Tech, I felt like it was something that I wanted to be a part of because I thought that we had the opportunity to make history there. Um, we were bringing in a pretty good group that he had already had coming there. And then, so we were like his first official recruiting class. So I was excited to be a part of that. When you're playing in Virginia Tech, you obviously you've got the ACC. So you're playing in Cameron Indoor. You're going to the Dean Dome. I'm sure there's a lot of really cool experiences you had. Which ones stand out to you from your time at, at VATEC? I love them. Um, being able to like go on any of those floors, like you could feel the history, you could feel the aura of what the ACC is about, you could feel what playing Duke is like, what playing UNC is like. Like you feel that. Probably the best part though is like being a Florida kid. Um, I didn't originally understand the VT UVA rivalry as much as someone who's from that region, but I think definitely going in there and um, being able to get a win at UVA was um big time. Um, that playing route was really good. So I just enjoyed like those types of moments and stuff like that. When you decided to transfer, how weird was it essentially going through recruiting all over again? And did it, did you maybe alter your approach to it based on things you learned the first time around? Oh, this time was definitely different for sure, because this was a one year thing, but something that could impact the rest of my life. I understood that. Um, I understood where I was at as a player more so now than I did when I was 17, 18, going through the process for the first time. And then this process was a little bit different because I was also um, testing the draft orders at first. So it was a lot different, a lot more public as well. So um, I took a different approach to it, but I also understood that I had a great opportunity anywhere I went. And I felt like I found the right place in Florida. And I think that we still have a lot of great things ahead of us. So when you came into the program over the summer, which guys did you gel with immediately that, that made the transition to a new program easier for you? Really, like, everybody's, like, bringing a different sense of, like, life and joy to playing basketball here. And that was something that I, like, really grew attached to, especially during the recruiting process. When guys, like, even before I got here, guys like Drew, Scotty, Trey, all those dudes, like, took the time to reach out to me first, see where I was thinking, see what I was thinking about um, in terms of school, in terms of what my goals were and everything, what their goals were. So I was really excited about this team even before I got here. And as soon as I got here, I could feel, like, the energy of, like, what everybody thought this program could be. So pretty much just the whole unit of guys, really, like, I got close to them, and I feel like, um, we're going to continue to grow as um, in our relationship as this season goes on. In terms of when you've got some time off the court, what are some things you enjoy doing when you do have an opportunity? Shoot, I read a little bit. Well, for the most part, like I'm playing video games with the team. So at the start of the year, we were all on Fortnite, but now everybody um, is playing Call of Duty. So 
we're always online with each other. We're always um, um, working out when we have the opportunity to as well. So it's fun. You say you do a little bit of reading. What are we talking about? What, what do you What do you like to read? I read a lot of different stuff. Um, I like to read online. I like to read um, articles. I like to read books from time to time. When we have like long plane rides, I read them um, just to learn a little bit more about like life and um, try to prepare myself for um, the future that lies ahead for me. And I'm sure a lot of that too comes from what you learned while you were in school, getting your undergrad degree at Virginia Tech. And I know that you majored in PR. Uh, what drew you to that major and, and what does that make the future look like for you? I thought that it, it could really apply to like sports and stuff. I felt as though it's going to be bigger and bigger as like technology grows and like as people grow to understand like the importance of relationships, the importance of understanding how to interact with people on much more grand scale since we have technology to um, band us all together now. So I think it's pretty cool. And then I just thought it was like a fun, interesting topics, and I like the classes. Being a grad transfer means that you are in grad school. So could you tell us about what you're studying right now at Florida? Right now I'm in a sports management program. It's all online, so that's really nice. Um, sometimes like I feel as though I'm missing out on like the college student aspect of being at Florida, but it also gives me a lot more free time to like work out, read a little bit on my spare time, play a little bit more video games. <laughs> and stuff like that. So it's a good balance. And when we're on these road trips, it allows me to like stay up to date on work and not have to worry about making up after I miss class or something like that. So it's a lot easier. Um, I think it's something that I've um, learned to manage pretty well. And I think that um, something that allows me to um, use my time more efficiently. You mentioned some of the interesting classes you had the chance to take. Uh, I'm wondering which ones stand out to you when you think back. What class did you learn the most from that you maybe still reflect on now? Um, I liked PR cases. I liked digital media. Uh, I like PR cases because it's like you got to learn real life cases of how like industries and PR teams work to prevent issues, but also ones where a PR team maybe wasn't there and they made some mistakes along the way. And I thought that was pretty cool because like, you can just see how like impactful, like the little things are for an organization or you can see whether it be positive or negative. So I like that. And then we also got to work on our own cases. So that was pretty cool as well. You talked earlier about playing some of your family members one-on-one sometimes when it comes to your teammates who are the toughest teammates to go one-on-one against? No, no, I beat them all. You beat them all? No, 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 just play. Um, <laughs> just, um, just depends on the scenario. Um, like, if I'm playing on the perimeter, um, somebody who's really crafty is, I think it's Trey Mann. Um, it's just, like, depends on the position on the floor. Like, if it's on the low block, I have an advantage against a guy like him. But on the perimeter, those guys are quick, really crafty. Drew's really good. Um, Keontae is like pretty good everywhere on the floor. Um, Scotty's really athletic. Jay's like like hard to guard on the block. It just depends on um, what position we are on the floor and stuff like that. If you had to watch the same movie every day for a year, what movie would you choose? The Dark Knight, for sure. Like, hands down. Either that or I, I could definitely see myself like watching Frozen. Like, that was a movie that grew on me a lot. Either The Dark Knight or Frozen. Those are two very different movies there. Very different movies. <laughs> Have you seen Frozen 2? I haven't seen the second Frozen. Okay, so you gotta, you gotta stay on top of these things. Um, 
if you had to pick one song to play on repeat for an entire day, what song would it be? Any Drake song is good to play an entire day. Drake is like my hands down my favorite artist. Everybody who knows me knows like like Drake is my man. So um, like any Drake song, like like I probably listen to it at least an hour or two a day. Like when I'm just not doing anything. Hmm. Do you have a favorite? Do you have like a top three, or is it too hard? Is it is it like telling people to choose their favorite child? It's the equivalent of choosing your favorite child. For me. <laughs> like. Every day it's like a different album that I'm on. So today I was on, I really was listening to the Nothing Was The Same album today, but tomorrow I might be listening to something else. So it really depends on the day. Got to stay agile. Never know what direction you're going to go, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is an audio, uh, this is an audio podcast. People cannot see you, but they do know for the most part that you're 6'10". So you're very yeah. tall. I'm curious, what are some of the biggest advantages and the disadvantages to being almost seven feet tall? Well, the disadvantage first is, like, you don't fit on, like, planes. It's really <laughs> bad. Like, you're really uncomfortable on a plane. Like, depending on the car, you can be really uncomfortable, like, driving and stuff like that. Like, pretty much, like, long legs. I have super long legs and, like, a, like a medium-sized torso. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, that part of it can um, be, like, kind of weird. But for basketball, it definitely helps being tall. Um, it gives you, like, a definite advantage um, when you're around the rim and stuff like that. Um, and then also being able to get your shot off when you want to because, like, you, you can see the rim at all times. Are there any positives outside of basketball, or, or is it kind of a uh, – is it a curse outside of basketball? No, I definitely I, – I like being tall. Like, like, I love, like, being able to see over a crowd, like – if we're in a crowded area, I like being able to reach a top shelf. We talked about the fact you're an Orlando guy. Are you a Disney Universal theme park guy? And are there rides that you are too tall to go on? I'm definitely a Universal Studios type of dude. Like, I prefer Universal over Disney. Like, Disney is, like, a really good experience, like, for the family. But, like, Universal, I, I love rides. Are you too tall for anything? Anything that, like, pulls over, like, my knees... Like, it's, it starts to get a little bit uncomfortable, but, like, I don't ride roller coasters anymore as much, but, like, I definitely like Universal. You have a favorite ride at Universal? Rip Ride Rocket. The Rip Ride Rocket. Okay, but you, I, I thought you don't do coasters anymore. I don't do them as much anymore, but, like, that one, like, I definitely love because, like, it plays music while you're on there. It's, it's great. That's the exception. A um, couple final things for you, just bringing it back to basketball. Speaking of roller coasters, um, kind of a, a roller coaster first month of the season. As the lone senior, the lone really high upperclassman, how much weight do you put on yourself to kind of steer the ship when things are maybe not going as well as the team wants them to be? Um, for me, I don't really consider it like a weight or like a burden at all. It's, I feel like it's an opportunity for me to lead our team to help others grow as well. It's an opportunity for myself to grow, not only in a leadership role, but also as like being a great teammate role and opportunity for us to continue to get better. Like we've seen what we can do when we're striding towards being the team that we want to be. And we've seen what, what happens when we're not accountable for each other, not accountable for our own actions. So I, I take um, a lot of pride in allowing us to grow, allowing us to trend towards getting better each and every day. And that's something that I consider to be important for me being the older guy on the team. Coach White has talked about sometimes when things aren't going well for the team, maybe you guys are feeling too good about yourselves and you're looking at the top 10 rankings and that leads to some of the hiccups. 
But what's the balance between being confident but not feeling too good about yourselves, as as your coach likes to say? I feel like having a confident poise is different for each individual and also different for every team, how they like manage it. I think our team is still finding that. I think our team is definitely confident in ourselves and confident in each other. And we just got to continue to show that each and every game, each and every um, day in practice. And I think that it'll be fine. Final question for you. Uh, we're coming up on the new year. It's not too far away. I'm curious for your basketball New Year's resolution and then a non-basketball resolution as well. Off the court, I definitely want to finish my master's. And then on the court, reach my individual peak and our team peak during the season, whether that be a Final Four, whether that be Sweet 16, Elite Eight, any, anything. I just want us to be able to not look back at this season and regret anything, to be able to understand that we got the most out of ourselves and out of each other. And I think if we do that, it's going to be a pretty great season. And it's also going to be something that's going to be remembered around here for a long time. Well, Kerry, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it and wish you a lot of luck the rest of the year. Oh, thank you so much. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Be sure to visit FloridaGators.com for all the latest news in the orange and blue, including scores, schedules, and more. Then come back next week for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in Gainesville.